biggest risk is that you know we don't have the political will, we don't have the, the commitment to, to solve this problem, and that we let it just continue. In which case, uh, you know, we, we can't we can't count on recovery. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson in the Planet Money Brooklyn South Bureau. And that's your house, right, Adam? Yeah, it's my my office yeah, in my okay. home. I've been there. I'm uh, I'm Laura Conaway, and I'm actually in the office. It's Monday, March 16th. On today's show, we're going to talk about China's big warning to the United States. We're going to continue our conversation about who's to blame for the economic crisis. But first, Adam, today's big story, it's a whole lot of AIG. Yeah, AIG is the big story of the day. In fact, it is our planet money indicator, $165 million. That is how much AIG says that they're going to be giving in bonuses to executives of the very division that um, created the products that have now brought down AIG and put the entire global economy in danger. And that really has a lot of people really, really unhappy. Our Twitter stream is just erupting over it. The headlines are just crawling on AIG about it because they're handing out these bonuses after getting $170 billion in U.S. aid over the last several months. Now, the the AIG story is that they have no choice, that this is a contractual obligation and they have to follow the law. Um, and, and, you know, it's it's worth noting that on Wall Street generally – we think of a bonus as something extra you get. Like at NPR, it's very rare to get a bonus. It's when you do something remarkable and you really earned it. Um, on Wall Street, a bonus is much closer to your salary. It's like your commission for all the work you did. So bonus is probably the wrong word. But it's hard to see how these folks really deserve... That many zeros in a check. That many zeros. I mean, it strikes me and it strikes some others, and we'll be doing a lot of reporting and trying to figure it out. But it seems – I used to work with this guy, this engineer, an audio engineer at a uh, public radio station that will go unnamed, who – he had set the whole station up so that it wouldn't work without him. He was the one guy who knew where everything was, who knew how everything worked, and it was a permanent employment contract for himself because – if, if anyone wanted to fire him, the whole station would collapse. And, and that's our sense of what these guys at AIG are, have going, that they created these unbelievably complicated instruments. They're blowing up, but they're the only guys who know them well enough to fix them. So we need to keep them at AIG if we want to fix the global economy. And they're basically holding us hostage. We don't know for sure that that's what's going on, but that's certainly a theory that a lot of that seems to be developing. Well, it seems like the White House is getting ready to challenge that theory just a bit. President Barack Obama just now actually came out and said that he's asking Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner to do everything he possibly can to stop the bonuses from from proceeding. Now, Adam, AIG has done other things that have gotten people riled. And one is that it paid out something like $90 billion to its trading partners, to banks and investment groups. And I can see why people would get mad about the bonuses, but I'm not sure about those payments to other banks. Yeah, I'm with you on this, Laura, because I, I mean, I felt when I learned about these bonuses, I mean, like everyone else, my heart started pounding. I was seeing red. I just felt furious. But this other issue that AIG is using government money, government bailout money to pay its business partners, its counterparties, that doesn't bother me because that's the whole reason why we bailed AIG out. Uh, when we talk about the systemic risk of AIG, the very issue is AIG owns lots and lots of banks and other financial services companies around the world, money, 
And if AIG doesn't pay them, those companies will fall apart. So the whole point of the bailout was to give AIG money to give to their counterparties. So saying that they're using the bailout money to give money to their counterparties, is it's a tautology. It's, it's obviously what's happening. Now, you might think, well, we shouldn't have bailed them out. The argument for why we bailed them out is, well, they had us over a barrel. If we didn't, the global economy would have collapsed. The way you prevent the global economy from collapsing, unfortunately, is the government is giving money to AIG so that they can give it to their counterparties. That's a totally different issue in my mind to the uh, bonuses to executives in a division that caused all these problems. Yeah, do you have anything else up your sleeve, Adam, anything you're hearing and you're reporting about AIG that you want to share with us? Well, I, I'll just say that, you know, Alex and David and I were um, playing around on Capitol Hill last week and we're going back tomorrow. And just a lot of the congressional staff we've been talking to have been saying, oh, my, the congressman I work for is really busy tomorrow beating up on AIG or some variant <laughs> on that. I mean, I, right in calendar, beat up on AIG. I mean, I think, you know, if you're in Congress right now, you've spent the last six months doing what Ben Bernanke and Henry Paulson and Tim Geithner and Barack Obama have been telling you is the necessary and essential thing to do to save the economy. But it's things that your constituents hate. It's giving money to rich bankers. And I pretty sure that the collective view of Congress people on the Republican side, on the Democratic side, far left, far right, doesn't matter, is, okay, now we have a boogeyman, and, and a boogeyman that probably deserves to be a boogeyman. So I think there's going to be, this is going to be a rough week for AIG executives, and I expect it only to heat up. All right. Um, Adam, last Friday while you were out, another thing happened, and that was this big I don't know if you'd call it a warning or an admonition. I'm not sure what you'd call it exactly, but it came from Chinese Premier Wen Jiabao. You're talking about what he said. Uh, we have lent a huge amount of money to the United States. I request the U.S. to maintain its good credit, to honor its promises, and to guarantee the safety of China's assets. Yeah, we had actually, we posted a little thing about this on the blog, and one person came in and said it reminded him of sort of Cold War rhetoric. It's definitely, it's a, it's kind of a heavy thing to say to the United States. And you do have to note, China has something like $1.5 trillion wrapped up in the American bond market in particular. Right. And we're talking about government-backed bonds like treasury bills and agency debt, which is basically bonds from Fannie and Freddie, which now are arms of the U.S. government. And, you know, I've been covering the China-U.S. financial relationship for several years now, and I can assume that it's pretty exciting for China to be able to be the one beating up on the U.S. since the U.S. has been beating up on them for so long. Well, what the Planet Money crowd wanted to know, Adam, was whether Winjerbao was basically saying he's worried the U.S. Treasury won't pay back those T-bills, those Treasury bills. So I called our biggest China watcher. He's an economist with the Council on Foreign Relations. We've interviewed him on the show before, Brad Setzer. The biggest risk that China faces isn't the risk that the U.S. government is going to default on its treasuries. That is not a realistic outcome. The bigger risk, and this is something that uh, China really can't insulate itself against, is that the dollar will fall over time. Uh, and that's the risk that China took voluntarily when it bought so many dollars, when it keeps on buying so many dollars. Now, there's a second set of risks that China's taking, and that's the set of risk associated with its investments in things other than U.S. Treasuries, you know, investments in Fannie and Freddie, investments in U.S. corporate debt. And there, there is at least some risk that those institutions might default. And if you look at what China actually has been doing 
judging from the, the data that the U.S. collects on on foreign purchases of U.S. bonds, China's been selling its holdings of Fannie and Freddie and buying a lot of treasuries. So, Adam, their sets are saying that China is not so much worried about its treasury debt per se. It's actually moving into treasuries even more. Yeah, I mean, I think China, like everyone in the world, is worried about the riskiness of lots and lots of assets. And like many people in the world are moving into treasury bills um, and, and, and treasury debt because that's seen as the safest thing in the world, even though they don't make a lot of money investing there. Um, you know, it, it, it's important to remember that when you buy a treasury bill, what you're doing is lending money to the U.S. government. That's, that's the way governments lend money. They sell bonds, which is a promise to pay the holder of that bond back some amount higher than the bond is worth. So the idea is, you know, China lends us $100 or a billion dollars, they expect to get $101 or a billion and a million dollars back six months or 10 years down the road. Yeah. And the way Setzer puts it is, it's not that China is so much worried that they won't get the number of dollars they signed up to get when they're signed up to get them. It's more that they're worried that by the time they get those dollars, they won't be worth as much as China expected. And Setzer says, this is really a new kind of message from the Chinese. China is starting to think like a creditor. And that means it's starting to care about the long-run value of all the money that it has lent to the U.S. That's a little different than the way China traditionally has talked, where it has talked much more like an exporter. Uh, it's when it's really and it's only concerned about making sure that there was a U.S. market for its goods. But now that China has so much money invested in U.S. treasuries and U.S. agencies, China is starting to act more like a typical creditor. And a typical creditor cares about the policies that the debtor is pursuing and wants to make sure that the debtor respects the interests of the creditors. Adam, can you just unpack for us, please, the U.S. policies that China is worried about in particular? I, I think it's easy to say what China is worried about. It's one word, inflation. They are worried that uh, with inflation, if you have a dollar today, it will buy fewer goods a year from now or 10 years from now than it does today. And a little bit of inflation is okay, you know, 2 or 3%. But if we have high inflation, 6%, 10%, 12%, 15%, you know, that trillion dollars that China is sitting on or that $1.5 trillion China is sitting on might be worth a lot less 10 years from now, 20 years from now. It might buy far fewer goods. So they're really worried that the U.S. is going to ruin the value of of the dollar. Now, the U.S., the Fed, and the Treasury Department are worried about something else altogether. They're worried about deflation, which, and we've talked about this a million times on the Planet Money podcast, but basically deflation sounds at first like a good thing. Because things get cheaper. Things get cheaper. A dollar buys more goods a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. And that all sounds great. Hey, I hold on to my dollars and I'm richer each year. Um, but the problem is that deflation creates really awful incentives in an economy. Basically, it creates an incentive not to invest. It creates an incentive not to buy. Um, so you have no incentive because why not hold on to your money? Why build a factory today or buy that car today if building a factory or buying a car will be worth more in the future? Plus, companies know that anything they make today will be 
worth less right away, so they'll make less and less money. So it just compounds that incentive. And as a result, deflationary economies, that's very dangerous. That's what we had during the Great Depression. So so the U.S. is worried about deflation. The way they conquer deflation is by encouraging inflation. Okay. And how exactly do they do that here? Well, you know, they have the federal funds rate down as low as it'll go to 0%. Um, they're flooding, you know, money into the economy. The Fed keeps, you know, it's this kind of confusing phrase, expanding its balance sheet, which basically means it keeps using brand new dollars to buy things from banks and, and, and just flood more and more dollars into the economy. So far, that hasn't created runaway inflation, but it does create the risk of runaway inflation. Well, so Setzer would say that China is worried that it won't get a full return on Fannie and Freddie. That's one thing. But he also says, you know, look, if you look around at what's happening with the dollar, it's instead of, as you say, instead of falling, it's actually gotten stronger during the financial crisis. Right. It's, when we talk about inflation or deflation, we talk within the U.S. over time, the dollar is either worth more or worth less. But there's another issue. Globally, the dollar is gaining strength against the euro and the yen, which has to do with the fact that we're in a global economic crisis. That's not a sign of, of good things. It's a sign of bad things. In any event, it has Setzer thinking that something else is worrying Chinese leaders. The, the thing which is a little bit puzzling is that China's expressing this unease even as the dollar has gone up. Uh, so it, it, that part feels a little bit strange to me. Uh, the big surprise of this financial crisis is that a financial crisis that started in the U.S. Uh, has, a, after all of its reverberations around the world, led the dollar to get stronger, not to get weaker. China should be happy. China should be happy. But from a political point of view, the, I, I'm really convinced that China's public and perhaps China's leaders uh, last fall uh, were enormously surprised to discover that so much of China's savings was invested in Freddie and Fannie. And that the, when they sat down and contemplated the possibility they'd put a half a trillion dollars in financial institutions in the U.S. that that couldn't stand on their own feet, that had to rely on U.S. government guarantees, they got a little bit scared. And you see that in the way that their portfolio evolved since August. Since then, they've been buying nothing but treasuries. So I think that, that China's leaders are beginning to think through something they should have been thinking through a long time ago, in my view, which is the consequences of running large current account surpluses, the consequences of having $2 trillion in central bank reserves, the consequences of having, because you have so much reserves, which are all uh, bonds or other financial assets issued by other countries, that you've invested so much of the savings of China's people abroad, and then the likelihood that you've invested money abroad even though you probably could have gotten a better return on that money if you'd invested in China, at least if you're thinking about it in terms of China's currency. It's a political wake-up call. Exactly. But it's also a message to the U.S. that, you know, don't forget that we are your largest creditor. So, Adam, Brett Setzer says that China has put the equivalent of about 40% of its gross domestic product right into Fannie and Freddie alone at this point. Yeah, it's hundreds of billions of dollars. We're talking about huge money. I, I remember the very first day Planet Money launched, September 6th of last year, happened to be the day that Fannie and Freddie almost collapsed and the U.S. came in and took them over. And I remember calling Brad that day and saying, so are Fannie and Freddie 
too big to fail. And he said, I think they're too Chinese to fail. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly, you know, it's several hundred billion dollars, maybe something like 500 billion, he thinks. And Adam, while we're on the subject of, of huge money, what can we expect from your reporting trip? What's the money coming back out of Washington from you guys down there? Well, we're, we are hard at work on two of the This American Life shows that we're hoping to do. These things are very dynamic, and we change our idea, our minds as, as things develop. But this is our current plan. Okay. One we've talked a lot about, which is who's to blame and really zeroing in on, you know, who, who's at fault for this crisis. The other is rewriting the rules of capitalism in America. Um, you know, we expect that this year and maybe into next year that Congress will fundamentally rewrite how the financial markets are ruled in our country. I think there's a wide consensus that what has been in place has not been uh, ideal, Um, although not so much wide consensus on what should replace it. So we spent last week, as we mentioned on the podcast, talking to people on Capitol Hill, talking to lobbyists. Tomorrow's one of the first big hearings uh, in uh, Barney Frank's Financial Services Committee. We're going down for that. Alex and I and David will be there, and we're going to be interviewing lots of Congress people and lobbyists, et cetera. And um, that's going to be a longer-term project, probably you know, eventually get on the air like in two or three months, although we'll definitely be bringing lots of it to the this podcast and on the radio in smaller segments and, and on the blog. Cool. You know, while you're out, we got this note from a Yale philosophy professor. He was talking about the nature of blame. He'd seen your, your open call basically saying, tell me, who do you think we should blame? His name is Matthew Noah Smith. And he says that if you want to think about blame the way he thinks about it as a philosopher... Imagine a Mr. Hand driving down the road, and Mr. Hand runs over little Jeff's new puppy. Oh, that's sad. So I guess it's Mr. Hand's fault. Well, Matthew Noah Smith says not necessarily. We could just say, yeah, he created a bad outcome, an outcome that was bad for little Jeff, an outcome that was very bad for the puppy, an outcome that was bad for little Jeff's parents, no doubt, and an outcome that was bad for Mr. Hand. But we wouldn't want to say he wronged anyone. And that's why we wouldn't want to say he, we should blame Mr. Hand for this. He, he just got unlucky. Okay, so in terms of our current economic situation, the global economic situation, I think I know who the puppy is. Yeah, it's all of us. Okay, so we're the puppy. But it, some people also say, we've said it on this podcast several times, that not only are we the puppy, we're also Mr. Hand. Well, that's interesting. Um, and the, this is actually where I think the, my distinction becomes really important. Now, it's possible that there's a way in which we are all responsible for the mess we've gotten into, but it's not necessarily that we've all wronged anyone. So it's not necessarily that we're all blameworthy, that we're the proper objects of blame. So who should we blame? And what we should do is we should look for the people who actually wronged us. And that requires thinking about the kinds of moral requirements or the kinds of things we expect morally from one another. So where did their behavior fall short of what we normally as a society think of as moral behavior, right behavior? That's right. And I don't think we should look to the law because the law sometimes renders things illegal that are morally acceptable. And then the law sometimes allows things that we think are morally inappropriate. I feel like my job as a philosopher is to start thinking about the questions of, well, what do people who are involved in finance owe us? What ought we as citizens have done in response to the growing debt? Are there moral rules 
that we violated? Have we betrayed other people? Have we violated people's rights? Have financial officers um, or financial players violated people's rights or betrayed us? And I would want to think really hard about the moral demands that each of us as citizens, as people, and the moral demands that people involved in finance uh, labor under. Adam, from the Yale Philosophy Department, to your ears. Yeah, well, this is a really tricky area, I have to say. I mean, I think there's so much hunger for just clear blame and just Blood, it just I seems think. like relaxing. Yes. It's like, oh, finally, I can just stop all the confusion and just hate somebody. And there are some people who <laughs> yeah. are truly hate worthy. Um, but there's also lots of dimensions that are just so tricky. It makes my head hurt. Yeah, it kind of makes my head hurt, too. I'm going to post that letter from philosophy professor Matthew Noah Smith on our blog. We're at npr.org slash money. And now I'm off to Mississippi for a week. Yeah, have a fabulous trip back home. I can't wait to hear how it goes. Thanks. I'll do my best. I might send a picture or two. Until I see you again, I'm Laura Conaway. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. you